From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Grand Hyatt in Midtown Manhattan. On this week's edition, the latest in corporate sustainability from the 2018 BSR conference, crowdsourcing ideas for addressing the sustainable development goals, how financial innovation could ease the plastic pollution problem, and what it will take to get aviation biofuels off the ground. We're live in New York, well, not really, but this week on 350. It's November 9th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350 from the BSR Conference in New York. Joining me from, well, across the conference room table, it's Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, great to see you. Well, hello, Joel. <laughs> nice to see you, too. This is the 26th annual BSR Conference. You'll hear in a few minutes a conversation I had with Aaron Kramer, the CEO of BSR, who will attest to the fact that I am the only human or any other species probably who has been to all 26 BSR conferences. I'm very proud of that. This is a great organization, and it's always an interesting event, primarily because it takes me out of the, the environmental space a lot and, and taps into uh, uh, human rights and uh, women's issues. Uh, we had a great, interest, uh, I think, presentation by David Schwimmer, the uh, Friends star who has had an organization, I did not know this, uh, 20 years um, uh, long uh, around sexual harassment, way before the Me Too movement, had gave us a really great uh, um, enlightening presentation and showed some of the videos that he made around the, the training videos they use. Anyway, it, it really brings uh, a new uh, perspective on this world of sustainability, what I like to call full-spectrum sustainability, not just the environmental piece. Yeah, so the full-spectrum sustainability issue, it, for me, I'm, I'm get, getting my arms around it, no pun intended, because of, you know, the, the diversity and inclusion and the sexual harassment yeah, stuff, but I know, hugging is, 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 I have to ask permission. In all seriousness, for me, the larger lens on inclusion and diversity, why, why to sustain means to sustain everything. It means to sustain our our humanness. It means to sustain the the economic and viability of communities that that uh, or actually to bring it to communities that might not otherwise have it. Um, and I yeah, for me the human rights um, uh, issues here that were mentioned. Uh, this week, um, the 70th anniversary, I didn't know that, the, the Declaration of Human Rights, um, that was just, it grounds you. It really grounds you and reminds you that that sustaining isn't enough. It means we need to think more about thriving, and that means humans thriving. Yeah, and it's been particularly interesting in light of the U.S. elections this past week and just sort of the, the fragile state of the of the world. Again, we'll talk uh, a little bit with Aaron Kramer about the fragility of the present. And, you know, it, it's just it's always interesting to be with this group of uh, forward thinkers, fairly progressive, uh, certainly open-minded people during a time when when the U.S. is going through uh, this electoral, this sort of grueling and sometimes painful electoral cycle. And not that they relate, not that we talk about it a lot except for in the corridors, but it, it just sort of, it, it it helps you remember that the world is so, so much bigger than than America or any country, and in a, you know, at a time when we're thinking about uh, you know nationalism, 
uh, and you come here and you recognize that, no, I mean, the world is connected whether you like it or not, and globalism is the way the world operates. And you think about supply chains from a business perspective, you think about uh, just how uh, the, the poorest people in the on the planet uh, actually affect our lives in ways that we don't always think about. It, it really is an eye-opener. And I particularly appreciated uh, the presentation by the Novartis CEO. He um, spoke a lot about why you need to be curious and why you need to just shut your mouth and listen to the people around you and, and stop trying to win the argument, but to try to, to really have a discussion and, and not to, to, to come in with, with your idea being the one that you're going to hold in your head and that you know, you're going to make this decision, but withholding um, and listening and, and not bossing people, but but creating a culture where ideas are allowed to thrive and, and bubble up. I'm sorry, were you saying something just now? I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't boss me around, Joel. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, let's let, let's let's put a pause on that and move on over to the weekend review. So our senior contributor, Eusilia Wong, had a, a really interesting piece about uh, biofuels in aviation. And this is the for all the impacts of, of aviation, um, and there are a lot of them, that biofuels is the one sort of short-term uh, solution that can reduce those, uh, those impacts. And there's a lot going on, um, and, and we're seeing that, you know, We've known for a long time that aviation fuels are are really a huge part of the of the global climate problem, um, as well as just uh, you know part of the fossil fuel you know industry that we need to be addressing. And there hasn't been much innovation in fuels. There's been some innovations in aircraft, in efficiency, and even the the landing and takeoff procedures and flight paths. But the fuels themselves are largely what they've been. So now we're seeing a, a, a certain amount of innovation. Uh, a company called Lonzatech out of Chicago, which is supplying biofuels for uh, Virgin Atlantic flights. I know our friends at United Airlines are uh, flying, uh, I think, every flight out of LAX on United has a small percentage. I think it's 1% or 2% of the fuels are, are made from uh, biofuels. Some of that actually comes from municipal solid waste, um, and some of it comes from, I think, algae. So uh, seeing some innovation there, and it's, it's, it's about time. So I think one of the things that I walked away with this, first of all, is that this is a particularly um, troublesome industry to address because you know you don't want to tell people to ground flights it, it, it's it is it has an absolute economic impact I mean that not not that that's not the case for lots of other industries but domestic markets are very reluctant to get too much in the way of the airline industry they don't want to prevent people from going where they want to go you know it, it's a transportation option they want people to have and they want more people to use it so that's a challenge right when it comes to um, why this doesn't doesn't evolve more quickly um, and uh, you know it, it it is a very much of an innovation thing. Where you're, it's going to be a long time before batteries can support this. So it, it, part of it is that we're flying bigger and bigger planes. And so maybe there's going to need to come a time where we actually think about smaller routes, um, smaller planes on more smaller routes and so forth. Um, and I, I actually, one of the things that I, I would like to see more about as well is, is FedEx was probably the only uh, delivery company that's focusing on this. But that's part of the equation too, right? You've got, uh, with e-commerce, you've got planes all over the, all over the air, <laughs> the air space, uh, delivering packages. And so 
for me, there's a couple things. One is that you know the more companies need to get on top of this. United is is doing a super job, but that you know that flight hub you mentioned, they're they're buying like one million gallon of biofuels a year, and they need one billion, you know, to to fly their fleet. So, um, you know, I think I think we're going to see more more innovation, um, but more companies need to step up. We need we need more of the airlines to invest in these biofuels companies, and we need probably. Um, more biofuels legislation and, and regulations because you know let's face it people don't want to take food and turn it into biofuels that that's a, a real serious issue and uh, so good good update on what's going on and um, thank you for for writing that Eucelia. I really like the piece this week we ran by uh, Shannon Booten and, and Cynthia She um, Shannon uh, both with McKinsey.org which is a fairly new organization started at just I think the beginning of this year it's a nonprofit part of the big McKinsey consulting group um, and uh, looking at a lot of different issues and and trying to sort of help us understand the world uh, from a perspective in this case of plastic pollution and. Shannon and Cynthia write about some uh, financial mechanisms, and they look at a number of different financial mechanisms for uh, dealing with, with plastic pollution. And what Shannon and Cynthia write about this week is uh, a number of different mechanisms for uh, helping address the plastic problem. That They talk about subsidized insurance and cost-plus contracts and fair trade and a price floor, and I think the price floor is the one that ends up being, uh, uh, in some ways, the way to go, just creating a, a minimum price for recycled plastic. One of the problems with recycled plastic is the price fluctuates along with virgin plastic, which is tied to the price of oil, and therefore you can't have a steady price. If you create uh, a price floor, like we see that for crops all the time, crop commodity prices where they, there is a minimum price that farmers get for something even if the price drops below that. And it's a government subsidy, yes, but it does help create a, a stable uh, and, and secure market. So I, I really like the fact that uh, sort of looking at how uh, governments uh, can play a role in addressing some of these issues in ways that we often don't think about. Yeah, and part of it comes down to thinking of these less as commodities and more as a long-term thing, the supply of things you need. So right now, lots of organizations buy sort of based on the spot price, right? And that's part of the issue, is that there is no sta stability. There's so much volatility in the prices. But if you look at some uh, another mechanism, so for example, a cost-plus contract, and we're hearing more about this um, with with big companies like Mars, for example, that buys commodities, a totally different kind of commodity, a cocoa, for, if you will. But if you, instead of having all of these short-term suppliers and, and buying sort of opti optimistically, you created a long-term relationship, um, and then you kind of set the price over the long term of that contract, kind of almost like a power purchase agreement, right? You hit, hit a fixed price and you make this deal. Um, that could just change the model for, for the supply. And I think the point here is that there are a number of mechanisms already being used mostly in agriculture uh, to uh, help even out the vagaries of, uh, of fluctuating markets that we haven't uh, really applied to plastic. And we should start thinking about that. It's a it is a commodity. It should be a commodity because it should be uh, recycled plastic should be an input in, in manufacturing systems. And if we start looking at them like we think about crops, there's a, a whole world of solutions that's possible. Thank you. 
No coverage of the BSR conference would be complete without a conversation with my good friend and the BSR CEO, Aaron Kramer. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Joel. Great to be with you as always. It's always a pleasure. Uh, so this has been really interesting week to have a BSR conference. And, and one of the things you talked about on stage was sort of about the fragility of the moment and how that impacts just sort of how we think about the future. And I'm wondering if you can sort of tie together, and I know you're, you're sleep deprived, but in, the, in spite of that, tie together sort of what's been going on in the United States this week. And, uh, and this is a fragility of the moment that you talk about when, when companies think about the f- their own future and the future of their customers and suppliers and employees. Well, it, so I'm often sleep deprived. And so um, I, I think that's factored into my coherence on a daily basis, Joel, but thank you. Um, you know, in the sustainability world, we talk all the time about the future. We're talking about net zero by 2050. We're, we're talking about 9 billion people by the middle of the century. That feels very far away. And, in, and indeed, it is really important for us to focus on building a future that is just and sustainable. That's why we're here. But I think it's been really clear to me over the last couple of months in particular that as we talk about the future, one of the things that we need to give as much attention to is the the fragility of the present. We're, We're living at a time when there is a lot of social discord, not only in the United States, it's true in Europe, uh, it's it's true. We've seen it in in Brazil. Um, we have people feeling a great deal of economic anxiety uh, today. Companies can plan for the future, but the the present is very very difficult competitively. And so um, I think we, we, we need to walk and chew gum at the same time, and we need to be able to think about the future. We're spending a lot of time on that at BSR with our Sustainable Futures Lab. But if we don't really recognize the things that are making action difficult in the present, I'm not sure we're going to get to the future. So in the sense of companies thinking about uh, sustainability and how they move forward, does it make it harder, this fragility, or does it enable a certain kind of focus that may even give companies a more immediate sense of purpose? Well, I hope it does, and I think in some cases it does, but the uh, requirement to deliver for the markets today such that you know you, companies simply don't have as much time to think about the future as they would like. You know, a chief sustainability officer at a company that's well-known, and I won't name him because he said it in confidence, said, I have the support of my CEO, I'm on the management team, resources aren't really an issue for me, my biggest constraint is simply the bandwidth of the company. We just don't have as much time to think about and implement the kinds of things that we'd like to do because we're trying to deal with a lot of interlocking challenges, new competitors, uh, often bringing new business models to the table, um, economic dislocation, uh, weakness in some consumer segments. These are all things, if we don't put out those fires today, uh, then we're not going to be able to deliver on our 2025 plans or our, our 2030 plans. So that's the reality for most companies. And I think in the world of sustainability, we, we, we really need to embrace that and help companies figure out ways to succeed today and build the future. I think everybody can relate to that phenomenon, including your your organization and my company. That how do you balance the the, the brush fires of today with the longer term growth, uh, and and that brings up the financial sector, uh, because the the whole short termism uh, phenomenon or issue or problem has been something that is largely driven by the Wall Streets of the world. 
Um, and, and environmental, social, uh, and governance data, ESG, as it's called. And, you know, I know, don't glaze over audience. This is a actually pretty interesting Char stuff. Alert. Uh, that's uh, something we've been working on and talking about for a long, long time. Do you see progress actually in how Wall Street and investors in general are looking at companies through the lens of sustainability? Yes, to a point. So it's been very interesting. The one red thread that I have picked up at the conference this year is a lot of mentions very spontaneously about the rise of ESG. So we've had lots of mention of Larry Fink's letter here, here at the conference. We've had lots of statistics uh, demonstrating the percentage of assets under management that are screened in one way, shape, or form uh, for ESG factors. So I do think there is movement. We hear lots of evidence from companies that on analyst calls, they are now starting to get questions. The TCFD is, I think, a game changer, and it, it is affecting the way uh, boards think about this. The UK has just issued a requirement that financial services firm designate a senior executive to uh, look after and report on uh, the company's approach to climate. These are unmistakable signs from the real economy, from real financial markets, and at the same time, it has not changed the fundamental equation in how, uh, how equities are traded and how capital is genuinely allocated. So I think we're in process. I think we are undeniably ahead of where we were five years ago, but it would be a massive overstatement to say, game over, we've won, uh, and long-term value rules the day. So how does that change? What is the happy path forward? So you mentioned Larry Fink, the chairman of BlackRock. You mentioned the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD. Um, those are a, a couple different elements, and there's probably a number of others. Uh, the EU, uh, and, and as you mentioned, uh, is, is mandating certain things around disclosure. Is it a series of those building blocks that eventually, I'm sorry to mix my metaphors here, reach a tipping point? Um, or, or is this something else sort of cataclysmic have to happen? You know, when I think about the cataclysmic uh, possibilities out there, most of them don't feel like good cataclysms, so I don't know. I, you know, someone once said to me that the best way to make transformational change is to do incremental change really, really well. And so it may be that, uh, that all of these steps are creating their own momentum which will lead to a paradigm shift. And uh, that's, that's my hope. I, I, I don't know that there's going to be a big bang. Markets are too diffuse. Regulators are too diffuse. Uh, regulators, by the way, are, are quite uh, distracted by a lot of other things going on in the economy. And, and, and frankly, uh, whether it's Australia, Brazil, the United States, we've seen a U-turn in national governments away from action on these issues. So I, I think it is going to be more bottom-up. It's going to be more the Paris Agreement model where we, where, where we build a, a collection of decisions that end up leading to a systemic change. But part of the premise of BSR from the get-go 25, 26 years ago has been that business may be the only institution that can truly transform the world in the ways that it needs to in terms of uh, social and environmental problems uh, being addressed. And it sounds like you're saying that, that really government is in the way now. Government's playing uh, uh, maybe a perverse role in letting business do that. Is that what's going on here? Well, I don't think BSR has ever been about saying that business must lead the way and is the only one that can. I think business 
needs to play its role. It needs to demonstrate leadership. But we do need government, and we do need civil society. And uh, by the way, we, we also need all of us as citizens and consumers to play uh, their part. So business needs to keep doing what it's doing. My preference would be that business and government are working in sync. Just realistically, it doesn't seem like uh, when you look across the globe that that's happening uh, in a consistent way. And so I think governments are, are possibly more focused on short-term decision-making these days than businesses are. We need both to shift their thinking. Well, it's great to see this great global assemblage of companies from every continent, pretty much save Antarctica, uh, working on these issues and thinking uh, big and, and longer term. And so thanks for bringing everyone together. Once again, Aaron Kramer, CEO of BSR. Thanks, Joel. And uh, for the record, of course, Joel McCower is the only person to attend every BSR conference. So thank you, Joel. At the BSR conference this week, BSR launched a series of scenarios from the Sustainable Futures Lab. And here to talk about that is the director of the Sustainable Futures Lab, Jacob Park. Hey, Jacob. Hi, Joel. So you put out four scenarios. First of all, tell us why BSR is doing scenarios. Then I want to get into what those four scenarios are. Sure. So, um, you know, in conditions of great uncertainty, um, relying on traditional tools like forecasts to help us understand the future, uh, is quite risky. Forecasts uh, can be useful over the course of you know a couple of years or for the sort of change that is quite certain like population growth. But when we're looking at some of the really big uncertain changes that are going to completely transform the world for sustainable business, whether it's uh, you know what the impact of automation will be on jobs or whether we're going to head for a two degree world or a four degree world, um, for those sorts of situations, we need to be able to consider more than one possibility. And that's where we want to use scenarios to, to really think beyond forecasting and consider multiple different possibilities. Talk a little bit about what goes into preparing these. You're not just making these things up, pulling them out of thin air. Is a series of interviews, surveys, crystal balls. What, what are you looking at? Yeah, no crystal balls. Um, so we do a lot of research to think about what are some of the key factors that are going to be shaping the future? Um, and that consists of interviews, desk research. Um, and then we try to identify what are the really key uncertainties? What are the big questions um, that, you know, within those factors, uh, they're going to shape how they play out? And those go into sort of creating the, the framework or the skeleton of the, of the scenarios. So climate change obviously is one great unknown, although there's a lot of known unknowns within that. What are some of the other big factors that go into thinking about scenarios? What, what were the top three or four things that were, are going to impact the future? Yeah, so there are big uncertainties around climate change, but um, the, the most unpredictable thing is really human behavior, human values. And when we went through the process of talking to our members about what they thought was going to have a big impact and where the big uncertainties were, the, the number one thing on the list was actually consciousness and values. And, and that ended up um, being a sort of key factor in our scenarios was the question of would we stick with sort of the current economic paradigm of endless growth and you know, profit maximization or could we imagine a future in which we really significantly shifted towards a view that the economy is there to serve human flourishing on a healthy planet where we've internalized externalities 
um, and moved away from you know a, a, a vision of just endless growth. Um, so those questions of politics, social values, those are actually really, really key. Um, one of the other great uncertainties that we looked at was the question of would the future see more consolidation and more centralization of you know, power, data, technology, or might we see um, the emergence of a more democratized or decentralized or fragmented future? Um, so, you know, these can have different sort of positive or negative valences as well. So enough setup. Give us a little flavor. And these are all on the BSR website. We'll give that address in a, in a minute. But give us a little flavor of the four scenarios you came up with. Sure. So um, one scenario we call a tale of two systems. And this is, this is a story in which there is a sort of crisis that besets Western capitalism at the outset. Climate disruption is, is starting to wreak havoc. Um, there is real technological unemployment from automation. And the West is struggling to really um, deliver in, in this challenging situation. Meanwhile, China steps into the breach and says, listen, we can offer you security. We can offer you prosperity. Um, we're going to be you know, monitoring you very closely, but if you agree to that deal, um, and, and they sort of um, you know, create this, this bargain with the rest of the world and present as a credible alternative to the West. And then over the course of time, um, Western business and government leaders really come to the conclusion that they need to start um, changing the way the economy operates and delivering uh, on you know the, the promise of prosperity and sustainability to citizens um, in order to really save capitalism. And uh, they're starting to do that at the end of this story. Uh, the second scenario uh, we call move slow and fix things. This is sort of the Portlandia scenario. Um, and here, too, there is a bit of a crisis in response dynamic. So in the beginning, um, there are a series of crises uh, that actually push people away from consumerism and social media and, and, and big business, for that matter. Uh, there's a health scare around the impacts of plastic on human health. Um, there, there's a series of uh, deep fake misinformation scandals in the 2020 election. Um, and between some of these, people start to opt out of, of some of these systems that right now feel almost inevitable but, um, you know, are, are actually of relatively recent origin, certainly, you know, social media. And people opt out. And what they find is that actually as local economies start to take root, um, that they, they actually like this, this lifestyle that they've started to create. Um, the third scenario is called Tribalism, Inc., and this one feels, you know, very timely right now, the day after the election. Um, and in this scenario, um, political polarization has actually intensified into just outright fragmentation. Um, and so it's no longer left-right, but it's kind of all over the map for all kinds of issues. And technology has amplified that. So, you know, with things like augmented reality, people are just no longer experiencing the world in the same way. And all business is seen as political. Whether the business thinks of themselves that way or not, consumers view all businesses through that lens. Um, and this makes collective action uh, incredibly challenging. And some communities, some tribes are, you know, doing very well. Some tribes aren't doing some, so well. Some embrace technology or science and, and others don't. 
Um, the fourth scenario we call total information awareness. This is a scenario where artificial intelligence has become just an absolutely integral part of all of our daily lives. Uh, we've come to rely on um, AI companions that reside in tiny earpieces that we wear around all the time and that you know, help us with everything from learning to navigating the world to simultaneous language translation or you know, what we should eat for dinner. And these AIs are delivering incredible benefits, actually. So, you know, type 2 diabetes is starting to decline. People are able to learn new things really effectively, um, but we've completely given up all, any, any notion of privacy. Um, and so this kind of plays out this dilemma of a high-tech future in which actually there are great benefits, but there are also really massive trade-offs. Wow, I really love those, and and I love the the combination of utopian dystopian uh, sort of commingled within each of those for each of the, the the benefits. There's there's always always a downside, so that feels really realistic. I I, I noticed that there was no scenario where the world you know hits two or three degrees and and all of a sudden the ecosystems start to go wonky and food supplies you know are are no longer reliable and um, uh, massive health uh, disease vectors and and all these sort of things that we talk about when we talk about sort of the bad scenarios on climate change the, where does that fit in yeah so um I, I tend to shy away from writing the Mad Max scenario primarily because it's not very useful for business planning. Um, there is a plausible future in which we're dealing with really profound climate disruption and ecosystem collapse, and it's it's scary and it's certainly possible, um, and and we need to be thinking about that. And I tried to build some elements of that into these scenarios, um, but I think for these to be sort of decision useful for business, we have to assume a certain amount of um, we have to assume that you know the world is still functioning to some extent ten years from now. Um, otherwise, it's just you know head for the hills. So you gave this away a little bit in terms of talking about business planning, but how do you see companies using these? Mm -hmm. So the most important way to use scenarios is to really uh, focus on strategy and how to make it more resilient to a wide range of future possibilities. And so what you would do here is say, all right, let's imagine that you know, the world of tribalism, Inc. describes our reality in 2030. What's happening with our business? How have our supply chains changed? What are our new customer expectations? What's the, the gamut of new challenges and opportunities for the business and for sustainability in this world? Um, how would we have to respond to be thriving in this scenario? You then do that for the other three scenarios as well and try to find what are the commonalities. Are there any uh, you know, no regrets options that would position you well uh, in all of those different worlds? If not, are there hedging strategies that you might employ where you say, you know, we're pretty sure that reality is gonna tend more towards the direction of total information awareness, but if it went tribalism inc, that would be so disruptive that it's important for us to think about a kind of back pocket strategy that we could deploy in that eventuality. And so you can think through some of these things. You know, some companies might develop a pilot project. Okay, what's what's something that, what would be a, a, a business model that would work well in, you know, the move slow and fix things uh, world and, and actually put together a pilot to, to think about what that would look like and, and develop that, but not scale it up unless 
uh, reality starts to tend in that direction. And you can then set up a set of indicators um, about change in the world that you might monitor to, to discern is reality heading more towards one direction or another, but you've already thought through what you could do in response to that and positioned yourself. And this is the kind of work that you're doing with BSR member companies, but you're also giving these scenarios away on the website. What's the address? Yeah, so I'll just say that these scenarios were written to be very broad, um, to be accessible to people in all industries. If we were doing a project uh, on, on strategy, we would focus these much more tightly. You know, what's the future of waste management in, in America, for example? Uh, people can go to bsr.org to download the four scenarios. These will give you a taste of scenarios, and these can be great you know, starters for thinking about the resilience of your business. Um, but I would suggest that people who really want to work on strategy you know, work with us to create a set of scenarios that are tailored for your business. Classic freemium model. <laughs> Jacob Park is the director of the Sustainable Futures Lab at BSR. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you, Joel. So a brand new uh, collaboration initiative for BSR called the CoLab was launched this week at the conference, uh, and it's described as an incubator and accelerator of private sector collaboration. Um, with the goal of mobilizing the collective power of business to solve some of the world's biggest sustainability challenges. Here to speak with me about the CoLab is Peter Michael Prusen Jorgensen. He is the senior VP in BSR's Copenhagen office and head of the new CoLab. And thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. So I did want to add collaboration, obviously, is a word I've heard many, many times at BSR. And I have seen the, the power of collaboration many times across industries in, in, in sustainability progress and pushing, pushing the whole industry forward on an issue. What is the specific stated mission of this particular collab? Why, why now? So it's a good question. I think why now comes largely from an observation that there is a lot more maturity in the private sector to collaborate on issues of common interest, but also growing recognition that some of the real challenges do require collective efforts as opposed to efforts by one company on its own or maybe one or two companies on their own. So I think that's the sort of change of mind that has happened that makes this the right time for us to launch what we believe can be a very powerful effort. So mature enough in terms of experience, mature enough in terms of mindset. Um, how will you prioritize? So it seems like this is somewhat linked to this, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, but lots of different challenges that could be addressed right now. So how is this uh, collab going to prioritize? That's a very good question. So I think what we have set out to do is really operate on the basis of four principles. And, and one of them is that we want to make sure that whatever initiative we put in motion creates business value and societal value. And, and, and the purpose of that is, of course, that we have seen over the years that if an effort is primarily driven to create society value, it's very hard to sustain corporate interest. There needs to be that double interest. The second principle we're looking at is we need to leverage business assets which means distribution systems, it means research capabilities, it means manufacturing capabilities, marketing, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to just looking at the philanthropic capacity. The third one we're looking at is stakeholder inclusion, which means we need to have the right holders and the stakeholders who will 
ultimately be affected by these initiatives. They need to, their voice needs to be heard so that we ensure that what we devise responds to what their needs really are. And the fourth thing that we really put a lot of emphasis on is this needs to be actionable. And we, we call that out because what we have seen in other, let's say, incubators, initiatives of this sort, is that there's a lot of good ideas generated. It translates into reports but reports do not necessarily translate into action themselves. So those are the four principles that will guide us. Now, they won't tell us whether we're going to work on health or on climate change or on education or on gender or what the issues are. And here we're going to be informed by what we see ourselves as being issues where a collective or collaborative approach can generate real meaningful outcomes, but also what is it that business comes to comes to us with, what are the issues that they care about, as opposed to us only sort of dictating this is important or that isn't important. So when you say we, you mean BSR we, or do you mean the collaborative we? Well, so it's the we, the, it's the BSR we for now. Um, what we hope over time is that we will have enough sustained engagement with our membership, that the we becomes our membership and that they actually ongoing present us with ideas or problems where they feel, I cannot solve this on my own. I need to work with others to find a solution that drive real outcomes. So who will be included in this? So we've clearly businesses, but any other stakeholders? Yes. Yeah, so this is definitely a multi-stakeholder effort. Um, so what I envision or what we envision is really that we will engage civil society, we'll get academia, the uh, expertise, whether it's academic in terms of real research or, or, or at a different level, and also governments where governments really have an important and meaningful role to play. We ultimately think that the real powerful or system-changing initiatives, they obviously have to involve multiple stakeholders. So this is, is this going to be some sort of crowdsourcing platform, you know, like a Kickstarter or, or some other type of effort where you can you can collaborate in virtually but also in person or or how will that be structured so that's exactly how we see it and and we we could have made it a fifth principle but we decided not to and that is to make this global um, that plays very well to the nature of BSR and who we are. We are a global organization. We take on global issues. But we also have to recognize that some issues are more regionalized or may lo more localized. So making that a default criteria, we decided not to. But what we do want to do is, yes, want to engage, whether it's in workshop formats, whether it's in, in, in larger settings such as the BSR conference, or it really is online crowdsourcing off ideas uh, and commentaries and criticisms or whatever it is, again, to make sure that what we, how we phrase an issue is going to be very different to whether you are based in the US or in Europe or you're in Africa or in Asia. And if we're trying to develop a global solution to a global problem, we need the voices of all of those regions and all of those perspectives. So will you be running, um, I don't know want to, I don't know if you're going to call them challenges or, or, or tasks that people are going to try to solve, but will you be running several simultaneously, like different types of issues being addressed simultaneously? That's, that's how it's going to be. Um, to begin with, we are, we are envisioning more like a staircase approach in that we will start out with some ideas we know are already there. Such as? So that could be a batteries supply chain. It could be antimicrobial resistance. So both are big issues in their own right, and they touch different supply chains, and, and they touch people in different ways. Uh, we're also looking at... Um, 
palm oil where there are initiatives in place, we're not entirely convinced that, that which those that are in place are delivering what we really need. Um, so we're going to take a fresh eye on that uh, or a fresh look on that. So taking ideas, but then over time, we are going to, to crowdsource on challenge through a challenges mechanism. Mm -hmm. So you just announced this. What's next? So what's next is we, we have already started uh, on some of these issues. So we're inviting companies now. We're beginning to do research on some of these issues. And next is we're also reaching out to companies to become partners to Colab. So we're looking to have uh, core funding to enable us to do a lot of this work. Um, and we're also looking to have partners come to us and say, listen, I'd like to support Colab, but it has to be related to SDG 5, which is on gender equality, or it has to be an 8, which is on decent work, which is a way for us to work as well. So we have the flexibility of responding to the needs of the marketplace. Well, good luck and thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Before we let you go, want to tease out a little announcement that we'll be making on Monday. That's on 12th November, talking about our newest, our third event brand after the Green Biz Conference we have in Phoenix every February and our Verge Conference, which we just had and have every October in the San Francisco Bay Area. The third one will be called circularity it'll be a standalone circular economy conference three-day event the first one will be june 18th to 20th in the twin cities minneapolis minnesota and much more to come uh, not just next week but ongoing talking about circularity so excited to share that with you meanwhile you can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization stories and events we mentioned in this episode while you're there Check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Email is still 350 at greenbiz.com. Send us whatever you want. We love to hear your comments. Heather and I will be back in our respective nests in New Jersey and California next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>